The battle of Britain is about to begin. Episode 72 of the Lead Pursuit Podcast, and it's been a while, but we are here today with myself, Steve, uh, Brett. How's it going, hey. Brett? Hey, everybody. Doing good? And the one and only Roger Garish. How's it going, Roger? It's going all right. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, Steve. Uh, it's just, what is it? It's now just after nine o'clock in the UK. So, uh, yeah, very well. And thanks for inviting us on. Yeah, and Roger, Roger's here for a special reason today, and we'll get into that. Uh, kind of a weird feeling recording here when it's still sunny and daylight out, you know, trying to link up with Roger. It's a little little new here, foreign territories. But uh, we'll see how this goes. And there's no Doug today, so this is kind of uh, me and Brett again. And we will see what happens here. But today, we will be talking about the one and only Supermarine Spitfire. But before we get into that, let's just talk a little bit about what's going on in the hobby world. And uh, man, where you been, Brett? We haven't seen you in a while. What's been going on? Man, I, I've taken a couple of two-week vacations pretty much back-to-back for moving and then for just sanity reasons, so... I feel like I've been gone forever and I haven't done any hobby stuff because I've just been, you know, moving in, unpacking and that kind of thing. But uh, steps in the right direction. I'm actually, as I, I'm sitting right now, actually in my future hobby space. So that's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I could say the same thing too. I haven't had a ton of time to do some hobby stuff. I've been plugging away a little bit of painting some bolt action, a uh, little bit painting some uh, B25s. But other than that, man, just wrapping up summer and uh, kind of sucking the last little bit of nice weather we have in the Northeast here. And uh, Roger, how about you? You been working on anything exciting? Um, I'm basically carrying on a 13-month obsession with uh, 3D printing, I suppose. Um, <laughs> if anything came out of uh, COVID-19 for, for me, it was uh, lockdown men had to find some other things to do and 3D printing sort of took off there and I uh, well as my wife says I'm just obsessed addicted um, so I've got stuff running upstairs I may disappear halfway through this just to check if something's printed okay so yeah so that, that that's me at the moment more and more resin see I thought for sure Roger that's why you were on today was to talk to us about printing because anytime I see any post from you, it usually revolves around several hundred new prints you've just completed. And I think to myself, how in the hell are you going to get all that stuff painted? You know, you're going to live forever if you keep making projects like that for yourself. I, I, I'm never going to get it printed. So I'm, I'm, it probably will end up going out to charity, you know, to charitable organizations or, or Martin, who is our UK excellent painter. So uh, I'm sending some stuff across to him and he will do a great deal of justice to those. I'm very happy showing printed models but then when it comes to actually 
the painting part, that's where I get a little bit uh, more nervous because uh, uh, I'm getting on a bit now. My eyesight's nowhere near as good as it used to be and my concentration isn't as good as it used to be. So the painting, I start off with great intentions and then I just look at it and say, that's terrible. <laughs> but yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> So speaking of COVID projects, uh, man, Brett, I don't know. Why don't you make a nice little exciting announcement we have here coming up? Why don't you take oh, it away? Yeah, okay. So, you know, besides, I know I've used my moving, what, two, three times now, whatever, as an excuse to for not getting any hobby done. But a big part of not at least not getting any games played has been the work we've been putting into the infamous campaign system uh you know the time that we would otherwise get on tabletop simulator to play our games and that kind of thing and, and maybe time that i would otherwise maybe spend in the evening painting a lot of times has been dedicated to just nugging out uh details and stuff for that thing and we had a long session last night and we can say that we are likely one day away one session away from full completion there's very little left to do we've done all the page numbering and all the silly final stuff like that a lot of that was done last night so very exciting i'm super stoked to know that we are at the very final stages of having something that we can then figure out how to get into people's hands you know i mean the race the race is on right we can't let uh the infamous midway starter set beat the infamous campaign so uh Hopefully we'll wrap that up tonight and then, uh, man, make it available, huh? It's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's been now, f uh, what, 14 months of really pretty constant effort. Uh, we've worked on that, I would say, what, once at least, if not two, three times a week for nearly 14 weeks with very few breaks in that period. So it's been a lot of effort. And we've had, it's not just been you and me, of course, Roger knows this, uh, Roger and Leslie and even others have had a lot to do uh, to collaborate on that and help us get a final product done. So we're, we're greatly in debt to uh, the folks who helped us out, like Roger and Leslie, and, uh, you know, for your effort to help us get this thing. And I'm so excited. I think, it, I can't wait to actually start getting to play it again, so. From, from, from being able to see it i think i think it's a wonderful product and i think it's going to go down really really well so um it's fantastic to know that it's coming out so soon you know as proud as i was of that final uh or whatever you call it that what do they call that second proof that you looked at that hard copy proof copy that uh, as proud as i was of that and how much it evolved from our very first proof copy that small changes we've made since that i'm even you know, it's, it's, it's certainly still evolving. And now, you know, it, it, the evolutions are just a little, a little tidier. They're not as dramatic or anything like that, but just the organization and some other little things. I think, uh, I'm just real excited. I think it's going to be a good thing. Yeah, it, it is exciting. And, uh, man, hopefully in a week or two, you know, get some, you know, limited edition signed copies out, you know, really sought after to the people who helped, but, uh, it's on the way. Yeah, it's exciting. So upcoming event, the Texas Broadsides event at the Lone Star Flight Museum, the 22nd to 24th of October. Uh, that is the same weekend as Siege of Vicksburg. So Siege of Vicksburg, uh, myself and Doug and some other pe Blood Red Skies people will be there. Uh, Texas Broadsides, if you're into Check Your Six or some of those other games, would be a great thing to check out. Sounds like a really cool event. Uh, love that 
kind of Texas contingency will be there doing their check your six things. And then Adepticon just dropped this week that looks like Adepticon 2022 will be happening. So keep your uh, ears and eyes open for any more announcements on Adepticon. That should be late March, right? I think the dates I have are 25 to 29 March. And man, Steve, I think you got to go, man. Doug and I are I'm just going to go ahead and say it. We're going. I, I'm sure he's going. I, I've, I'm going to go. I think he should come. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe we got to get Leslie or Roger or some of those other guys over here, too, for Adepticon. Huh? Easy flight into Chicago. You can get a flight from anywhere in the world into Chicago. Shouldn't be too hard for them to get here if they're out of lockdown by that point. It would be uh, it would be excellent. Um, I haven't been to the States for a couple of years. And... Uh, well, it's uh, it's it's we don't we haven't even had any uh, conventions properly starting up in the UK for such a long time. Uh, we're starting to see a few turning up um, soon. There's going to be a Warlord Open Day soon, and there'll be the Salute Show later on in the year. Um, but um, really, it's been dead in the UK for, for 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 so many months, and slowly but surely, we're moving in that right direction. So. Um, yeah, coming across the States would be wonderful. It would be a really good thing. And uh, I know there's several of us who just really love to do that. So before we get into the meat of the episode here, uh, I have to preface this as we did with the 109 episode that I have said numerous times that I am a big fan of history light, right? So I like history I love the machinery and I love kind of the anecdotal stories that come out of history, but I am by no means a scholar or a student on the Spitfire. And in fact, you know, I, I do have to kind of admit uh, when I got into Blood Red Skies, I kind of saw the starter set and my immediate thought was I'm going to buy some Corsairs. I'm going to buy some P-51s and, uh, I just didn't like how they played. So I said, you know what? I'm going to check out these Spitfires and I'm going to give it a go. And I would say in the last probably two years that I've had this game, I have learned more about the Spitfire and the Battle of Britain and just that sort of aspect of World War II than, I mean, I even knew existed. So we have Roger here that is going to kind of jump in. But uh, from my standpoint, I'd like to really kind of focus on how the Spitfire fits into Blood Red Skies, and uh, talk a little bit about the history, but see where we can go uh, towards really how it plays in the game. So just, Roger, if I make any mistakes here, please feel free to tell me to shut up and uh, correct me. Yeah, you've you got to realize you're, you're talking about a, uh, an iconic uh, thing. It's, it's almost held in mythical status um, in Britain because of... You know the Battle of Britain itself, and despite the fact that the Spitfire, you know, was was not probably didn't shoot down as many aircraft to say the Hurricane did or whatever, um, it's 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 a it's it's a national icon, so um, it, it means a lot. And when people talk about World War Two here, uh, more than often, it's the Spitfire that comes to mind. So, so just to give a little brief history of where we're coming from just the notes that i found just doing some minimal research looks like it was kind of conceived in 1934 and it was kind of a a response to they wanted to have a fighter that had eight 
303 machine guns. And if I remember correctly, I think I remember hearing anecdotally that the shape of the wing, that iconic elliptical shape, actually came about just because of needing to fit those eight 303 machine guns into the wing itself. Yeah, um, the, the, the eight machine guns, um, to be fair, was, uh, came out of the fact that there was very little confidence at the time that pilots would be able to hit their targets because aircraft were getting faster and faster. And during that period of time in the early 30s, there was hardly any difference between the performance of a, of a fighter, as far as speed was concerned, and a, um, and a bomber. And the idea was that you would probably only get one pass because of that speed differential. And you needed to basically, they reckon you had two seconds of firing against a target. So eight guns covering the largest amount of area, getting a hit, a two second shot, hopefully would be enough to kill a it would be enough to kill a bomber. So yeah, that, that that's where the eight the eight guns came from, simply on, on the fact that it was felt that you needed to throw out as much firepower as possible to actually hit the target. I was recently watching a, a pretty recent documentary made in England about the Spitfire and uh, there was some pretty cool things about the wing itself that they hit on about, I guess there was a, you know, a huge team of designers at Supermarine, And one of them was a Canadian that somehow went to Germany and, uh, studied somewhere with some German engineers and perhaps, uh, borrowed that elliptical, that sort of, uh, you know, that iconic wing shape from a design concept that a German engineer had and brought it back. And at that, uh, it's a big part of how that wing design, that shape anyway, uh, came into play. I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, insight. As, as, as much as anything, it was the, 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 the sort of the rapid development that took place in materials and manufacturing capability in the, in the 20s and the 30s that, you know, um, that these sort of wings were seen as being ideal, but at the time they just couldn't see how to build those without all the bracing, without all the various other structural things. But these new cantilevered wing designs, at that point in the early 30s, they began to realise that they could actually, you know, uh, turn those concepts into facts. Beforehand they couldn't do that, but now they could. And I think there was the, 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 the elliptical wing idea and, well, many, many excellent aerodynamic wing ideas sort of came to fruition in the early 30s purely because of that technological um, advancement. You, you often hear um, some people saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, this was a, this was a direct development of the Supermarine S6 um, uh, racing uh, seaplanes that, that, that uh, contested the Schneider trophies in the, in the, in the 20s. Um, but in reality, that was probably as far from the truth as you can see, because if you look at the two aircraft themselves, the, you know, the, the S6 did not have the elliptical wing. It had all the bracing and wires and the like. Uh, it was sleek, there's no doubt, but very little, um, very little uh, similarity between the two. And it's all one of those almost like urban myths has built up that, you know, the Spitfire developed from that. In, in fact, it developed from a probably from a from a, a supermarine model called the 224. In, in, in the early 30s, the Air Ministry uh, put out a, um, a, a requirement to the various companies to build the, the fighter, you know, the eight-gun, well, four-gun fighter, as it would have been then, but the, the sort of the ultimate fighter. 
and uh, Supermarine actually brought out something called the, t the 224, and it was a um, it was a monoplane. It had it was gull winged and it had um, non retractable undercarriage. Um, but it was a failure in the end because the engine, the Kestrel, uh, was a failure, and, um, and and that killed a lot of prototypes. But it was actually called at the time the Spitfire. So there was a Spitfire back in the early 30s. Um, it ended up actually on a range, a shooting range somewhere to be destroyed. But in some respects, if you look at that Type 224, you can actually see where the, uh, where, where the development or the evolution into the Spitfire actually, actually took place. You know, I always think that the Spitfire just, you know, besides being such an iconic silhouette and everything, I think if you're, if you look at it, it just looks so sleek and, uh, I don't know the right word, sort of, um, it, it just, looks you know, modern, right? Like for the yeah. other planes at the time, it's a very, it just looks very modern. Yeah. It, it has, a, it has an aesthetic that is pleasing in a way that, you know, compare, we talked about this a little bit on the last spotlight episode about the BF 109. You look at a BF 109 G, there's nothing like terribly sleek and, uh, animal like at least, from a, I don't know, it, you know what I mean? Like the 109 is just kind of ugly looking in a, in a brutal way. Whereas that Spitfire is, is so sleek and I can't think of the word, but you know, it's going to come to me. It's just, it's very aesthetically pleasing in a very sort of streamlined way that uh, it's sort of the opposite of a 109 G in that regard. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's just, it's a very, uh, like you said, it's just a very different design. Whereas the 109 was kind of like all business. The Spitfire, you look at it and you're like, yeah, you know, they put they put a little thought into how this was going to look, uh, you know, form and function rather than just function all the way. Yeah, yeah I guess a kind of elegance. And maybe that's the word I'm hunting for, you know, sort of a, an aesthetic elegance besides just the functionality of the thing, you know? Mm. And I think that is one of those things that actually, uh, again, why people sort of, you know, hold it close to their hearts here. I mean, the, the look of the thing, and also to tell you the truth, the sound of the thing, because the Merlin engine, I mean, you'll hear that when you, when you listen to, you know, Mustangs and, and the like, but there's a, there's a sound. Whenever, whenever, whenever we're here and, you, and you, you, you hear that sound, it's unmistakable, and it always gets you rushing to the window to have a look out and see if it's a hurricane or a, or a Spitfire. It's it's the, the sound of the Merlin, you know, the Merlin Ten, as they say. You know, it, it, it's it's just it's just it's just wonderful. So it was delivered to squadrons. The first delivery is in 1938, and when the Battle of Britain broke out, uh, I guess it was because of the supercharger that it was pretty much tasked with those high altitude rolls of bomber intercept, which I guess would be a reason why. The hurricane certainly was responsible for downing more aircraft and more kills and such like that. But that elliptical wing they found was very optimal for kind of those high altitude intercept missions. Is that still going in the right direction there, Roger? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one of its major roles was to you know, break up or, uh, you know, break up the escort fighters, you know, whether they were sort of, you know, bouncing from, from, from high up or whether, you know, they were, they were, they were actually in close escort. Um, you know, it, it did tend to work out that, um, and, and uh, that the, the, the Spitfire would generally be tasked in the anti-fighter role, thus leaving the Hurricanes 
Well, the Hurricanes had plenty of uh, run-ins with the with the 109s, but but tried to concentrate the Hurricanes on the um, on the bombers. Because um, again, it, it's, it's interesting because both aircraft were really designed as interceptors and as bomber interceptors. Because again, it never ever really came into British thinking that the Germans would be able to roll over France, would be able to take down the, the low countries, and that you would actually have single-engined escorts, you know, accompanying German bombers over Britain. It was just not even envisioned. Um, so we were lucky that the Spitfire had that additional edge in performance that meant when we had to take on single-engine fighters coming over here, we actually had an aeroplane that was capable of doing that. If we'd say just had the Hurricanes, you know, they would have done sterling well against the bombers, but you know, probably not as effectively as against the uh, against the 109s. Um, so we were we, we were lucky in that respect. But yes, you're right that the, the that additional performance hike that the Spitfire had and its streamlining, I think, um, you know, lent itself to the you know the anti-fighter aspect of, of, of the Battle of Britain. Excellent. So, and the real remarkable thing that I find about it, and this was the same with the 109 episode, in total, there were 22 variants made of this aircraft. So just like with the 109, where they kind of had that tried and true design, and they kept adapting it and modifying it. The Spitfire is very much the same, where a lot of the American planes, you don't see that. You might see three or four variants, and then they kind of take what they learn, and they build a whole new airframe. 22 total variants with the Spitfire, uh, a couple of naval variants, a photo recon variant. Now, I wanted to ask you, uh, the Seafire, when I look at a Seafire, I can see uh, a pretty visible difference with the naked eye. Does the Seafire fit in with those Spitfire variants, or does that start to kind of transition where there's kind of like a line there? Is that kind of its own aircraft? Um, the Spitfires just tended to be um, parallel versions of the of, of whatever happened to be the the the, the main uh, land-based fighter at that time. So um, beyond elements of strengthening of certain areas of the aircraft, um, you know, putting in sea survival gear, uh, an arrestor hook, etc. The 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 Seafires to a certain extent were very very close to their land-based um, equivalents. Um, the Seafire was never a great carrier aircraft in some respects, often simply because of the way its undercarriage was, because you know it, it, when it's undercarriage, it's, it's not wide-spaced. It's very close together. And you, there's, there's, there's tons and tons of photographs of Seafires that have uh, had <coughs> landing accidents where the undercarriage couldn't take the, take the hammer or the bang. Um, so, you know, once it got off the deck, it was great. Um, but getting it back onto deck was a lot harder. And I think, you know, the fleet air arm was, was, was very happy with, um, you know, when it was able to um, uh, pick up uh, American uh, fighters like the, you know, Wildcat Martlet and eventually the, 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 the Hellcat and, of course, the Corsair. Um, so it was, you know, effective. It was an effective aeroplane as a, as a you know, as a carrier aircraft. But um, it was... It was it was it was uncomfortable in that so in in that sort of position. But when you wanted to, but if you wanted a high performance fighter, then you know that was necessary. And, and the RAF need uh, sorry the Ro the Royal Navy the fleet air arm needed high performance fighters because it was coming up against you know 
you know, zeros, Messerschmitts, other things that the earlier fighters just couldn't handle. So, 22 variants made, and service life, so the fighter variants, I found, they were retired in the early 1950s, uh, and this, again, really kind of parallels to the 109. It really fascinated me how long the longevity of that aircraft. But the photo recon Spitfire served all the way through until 1954, 1955. Mm. So when you start to get into the mid-50s, to have a plane of pre-World War II origin in that same arena, uh, th that's pretty impressive that those were still flying until the, the mid-1950s. Mm. I, I think it was one of the things about the Spitfire. Um, was w w one of its strengths was its was the airframe had a lot of capacity for development um, from a, from an engine perspective from an aerodynamics perspective um, you know where you see you know you see later Spitfires with contra rotating props the bubble canopies um, laminar starting off with laminar wings. Um, it, it, it had that it had that ability which perhaps some of its contemporaries some of its second world war contemporaries like the 109 or whatever you know couldn't couldn't match so it was uh, for, and, and it was widely exported um after the war so everybody wanted the spitfire and um so I, I can't remember how many um operators there were of it i think india were, the la were one of the last people to uh, was one of the last countries to actually stop using it um uh, I think 1957 was when they, when the, when the Indians finally retired their last photo reconnaissance um, Spitfires, and I, and I think its last air-to-air -air combat role was probably during the um, Arab-Israeli conflict in uh, in 1948, um, where you had a number. Of, well, actually, you had a number of Spitfire on Spitfire engagements because the Egyptians had Spitfires, the British who were there still had Spitfires, and the Israelis had Spitfires as well. And there was a there was there was quite a number of dogfights um, between the various sides. Um, so yeah, its longevity is is, is very very impressive. Um, and you know you, there, there's there's quite a few of them still preserved on, and still flying examples. Not as many as we'd like there to be, but there's still a lot of them out there. Um, so it certainly was an airplane that had a at a level of longevity it, it, it could be taken to the next level and that's probably a reason why you're seeing sort of 24 or 22 24 marks of the thing because you know that continual enhancement i mean some of the marks were just simply you know a, a different engine or to show the fact that it was produced from a different sort of factory or something like that but um there was a there was a, there was a heck of a progression Hey, Roger, I wanted to ask you, is that Merlin engine kind of synonymous with the Spitfire? I mean, I know a little bit about the Merlin, but I was thinking you could probably tell me a lot more. Well, I mean, it was, uh, it, it came out, it, it, well, there, there was, a, there, I think it was, the, I think it was the Goshawk was the engine, I think, that was originally going to be the, the fighter engine in the, uh, in the early 30s. And it proved to be a real failure because the cooling, the cooling they couldn't keep it cool. And then at that time, Rolls-Royce had a fairly successful engine called the Kestrel. And that was de then developed further. Um, you know, the whole idea of the superchargers and the like. Uh, and that became the Merlin. And the Merlin sort of became, well, there was plenty of other, other, other aircraft manufacturers. You know, there was the, there was the Hercules engines, etc. But the Merlin 
uh, is, is extremely famous because it, it was obviously the Spitfire's power plant. It was the Hurricane's power plant. It was the power plant of the, um, uh, you know, of the Mosquito, of the Lancaster. So all the sort of the, you know, the big players, the, the Merlin engine. I mean, again, you know, you'll get a sort of jingoistic effect from, uh, from, from, from our side, you know, you know the, the engine that won the war sort of thing. Um, and of course, we always point to the fact that, you know, the, the, you know, the, the very successful P-51 Mustang had a developed version, a, a, a license-built version of the, um, uh, uh, of the Merlin as well in the, in, in the Packard. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those things that um, I think, I think it's a, it's, it's, you, you can't divorce the Spitfire from the Merlin in a way because they are, they are complementary. And I think, you know, one without the other, you know, wouldn't have been, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Spitfire-Merlin combination was sort of like a, a dream ticket. Did did early Spitfires have some kind of um, inversion uh, problem where if they like like a uh, a negative G loop or something the, the engine might give you yeah. problems? What was that all about? Yeah, well, um, it's, it's mostly brought out in the Battle of Britain where you get um, Messerschmitts, for instance, if they're getting into trouble, could generally get away from a Spitfire by sort of going inverted and diving away, and. The Daimler-Benz engines, I think, were fuel-injected, so they could handle those sort of manoeuvres with no issues at all. But the Merlin engine in both the Spitfire and the Hurricane, you know, gravity carburetors, and once you went into negative G, that had, a, that had a good chance of cutting off the flow of fuel to the engine, and that would cause a stall-out. So it was, a, it, was, it was one of those things that it was always a sort of a get-out-of-jail-card-free for a Messerschmitt generally, that if it got into trouble, it could usually just roll away and dive and get away because the Spitfires and Hurricanes couldn't follow because in all likelihood, they'd be suffering from some sort of engine failure. But then, about, uh, then, then, then you know, within a couple of years, the Merlin was fitted with a, um, I don't want to say gravity resistant, but a, but a carburetor that, 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 that wasn't um, upset by negative G. So Spitfires could start then following uh, fuel-injected engined aircraft into us in, you know in, into those sort of negative g dives is, is there any so there's another thing i was thinking about with the spitfire that I, and i can't remember the the term but didn't they have a funny colloquial term for the um control column like like what they call a beer handle or something like that is are there are there like colloquial terms or slang terms or whatever for the spitfire and in, in, in different ways like that um, I think there probably are. Uh, to tell you the truth, I'm not too familiar um, with those with those aspects. Um, <laughs> I, I I I I will try and find out what that what what that was, but that 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 one eludes me at the moment. I mean, there's a there's a few interesting things that you know, the Spitfire got involved in, sort of colloquially. I don't know if you've seen some of these pictures. You see of some Spitfire Mark Nines, um, which have got beer barrels. Um, on the um, on the on the bomb shackles, and this whole idea there was an express group of Spitfires that would bring beer from the UK into France after D-Day, and uh, they'd fly at high altitude. And of course, these beer barrels would be full, would, would, would be cooled by the uh, by the high altitude, and they used to bring this the, this beer across to the uh, to the forces in France. Um, I think it was a bit of a uh, uh, you know, sort of propaganda type thing, but it's it's one of those little sort of um, anecdotal things that that happen with the Spitfire. Uh, and one of the, one of the things, just as interesting, was that Spitfire as a name, Mitchell 
who designed the Spitfire hated it. Didn't didn't like that name at all. And in fact, one of his one of his ideas, what he wanted to call it, was the Supermarine Shrew, S H R E W. You know, the little rodent uh, little um, little thing. So yeah. I'm trying to imagine how it would have been that, you know, you get Germans shouting Achtung Schrue rather than Achtung Spitfire. It wouldn't have had quite the same ring to it. <laughs> That's funny. I'm always perplexed when I hear, you know, fighter aircraft names like the Pea Shooter or in this case, the Shrew. It, you know, it doesn't sound really frightening. Aren't there some Australian aircraft that have funny names like that, too? Like the, I don't know, the, the Wallaby, I think. Right? <laughs> Something oh, like yeah. that. The we're away. Do, we're away. Know, whatever. Yeah. We're away, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't. That doesn't sound terribly frightening. I, I think the Spitfire certainly sounds a little more intimidating than true. But hey, that's interesting. That's a neat. Hey, you know, we were on Happy Hour just. Yet, uh, well, guess what was it? Day before yesterday, and you held up a book and you claimed it to be the Bible for the Spitfire. What was that book, Roger? Um, I, 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 it, it's. Uh, I'd have to go upstairs to get it because I had to come down because of because of a, cha- a, a change of computers. But it's 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 a, it's a 450 page. Uh, I think it's Spitfire: The Complete Story. I'll I'll get you the details afterwards. So maybe you can just drop some uh, drop something, and when you when you put the podcast up, you could actually put up a reference to the book itself. But it, yeah, it is the Bible. It's about 450 pages worth of of, of just total detailed information on the Spitfire, all the nuances of it, each goes through each mark, um, uh, all the various developments, the, the, the changes that took place, why they made those changes. It's, it's a fantastic thing and it's, it's just an X and three view colour drawings as well of, 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 of multiple colour schemes in different nations and things like that. I'll, I'll get a hold of that and I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll get you that so you can put that, put that information up. But anybody who really likes the Spitfire or really wants to know everything there is to know about Spitfire should get that book. Awesome. Well, let's transition here to the Spitfire in-game. And I'm hoping you could kind of make, us, make some sense of this for us, of where these different cards come from, uh, why Andy chose these specific marks to make that uh, a definitive new aircraft. Uh, but we'll start off with the first one, the Spitfire 1 slash 2. And that's just oh. the starter kit Spitfire, everybody's basic airplane. It's a speed 7, maneuverability 3, and a firepower of 1. So, I don't know, Roger, that firepower mm. of 1 for an airplane that was supposed to have 8 machine guns in the wing. What, what happened there? Well, it was... I, I, I guess it... Well... Andy, Andy initially determined three, three firepower levels. So that, that was going to be it. There wasn't going to be anything, and well, four if you count firepower zero. So he knew that he would have to be catering for beasts like the 262 with 430mm cannons, you know, further up the range and the like, and, and, and multi-cannoned aircraft. So um, although eight 303s sounds, you know, fairly effective, um, it's it's it, there's a lot of anecdotal and probably real information to show that that when um, that those bullets uh, those three oh threes even if you could deliver a fair few on target were not really that capable of bringing down uh, aircraft as effectively as say a cannon armament uh, or even a, a heavy machine gun armament so um, at that time. Um, it was just determined that okay, we'll 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 keep we'll keep both because they wanted to keep the 109 and the Spitfire 
reasonably balanced. So um, the feeling was that you know, two 20mm cannons, two machine guns in the, in the, in the MA109 versus eight 303s, um, they'll be balanced out. Um, we were looking at firepower factor two for things that had like four cannons, yeah, four 20mm cannons or something like that. So we just decided at that point to say, well, okay, let's, 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 fix, it at, uh, let's fix it at one. Um, you know, and, and we know people will either agree or disagree or, 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 or whatever, but we had to sort of put a line in the sand at some point, and that's what we said. So, okay, uh, these first two fighters, because, uh, I mean, we didn't even know, you know, how much further this game would go, um, if it, you know, how many more aircraft we would actually get. So um, we just said, no, make it firepower one, and uh, we'll make the ME109 firepower one, and then, you know, so, other stuff could be worse than that or better than that, and we'll, we'll, we'll rate it accordingly. So I forgot to mention the Spitfire trait on at least the one and two in the early Spitfires, it is a single trait aircraft with tight turn. And as far as the starter kit goes, that is kind of where you get your first taste of how the aircraft in Blood Red Skies sort of get their own personality or mm. their own unique flight characteristics, right? So the tight turn trait of the Spitfire, uh, comparing it to the very similar stats, but the great dive and great climb of the 109. So what do you mm. think about that, Brett? Well, oh, sorry. It's, it's uh, I think, I think stat-wise, I mean, clearly they're very comparable. I think it's an excellent... Uh, pair, right? A match set for the starter set. I think it's an obvious choice. It's, it's got all the historical, you know, background that makes it a perfect combination too. But I think stat-wise, you have a very good uh, uh, competitor between the two. And I think what what you really what you really do to make these things play is you have to then start diving into the card mechanics of, you know, using the mm -hmm. doctrines and all that stuff to complement the tactics you have now. I mean, the, the traits that you have, I, I believe from just what I've seen, like reactions I've heard from people who have played the box set a few times and haven't maybe really fully explored the, the ways to maximize your traits with the doctrines and, and, and those kind of things. I think they find that the great climb card that the 109 has is sort of overpower, right? Because maybe their impression is they've played a few games and they were frequently not allowed to to climb to advantage and that hampered their game. However, I believe if you play enough of these enough of the games, and I know you've mentioned this before, Steve, uh, the tight turn or the Spitfire having a single trait has its own advantages. And, um, you know, of course we've talked about this a little bit, maybe in previous episodes, one way to sort of kind of negate, if you will, partially, uh, neuter the power of the great climb is just do a different pilot action. A lot of times you can make that work to your benefit. Um, so I, I don't want to belabor it, you know, the whole thing, not this, I, I still believe they are very well matched. I think that's true. I don't think one is greatly overpowered over the other. I think, you know, we joke all the time that tight turns the cheater card. I think it is a very powerful trait. I think the fact that it's single trait makes it even perhaps more so. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't give up on either one of them. I, I, I don't think it's fair to say that one or the other is grossly overpowered, uh, you know, to its counterpart. Is that... What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I would agree 100% with that. And I, I will say what I think it really does well in the starter set is it kind of gives two very different 
play styles in that box set, right? So the reason that I really like the tight turn card is because that's a card that I can use to do what I want to do, right? Like the tight turn card is not dependent on somebody else doing something for me to use the card. And I tend to like to play that way where I want to kind of be in control of my abilities and the capabilities of my squadron where the great climb card, very powerful card, but you are dependent on me doing something before you can use it. Right. So it kind of takes that little element of control out of the player's hand. But I think as far as pairing them in the starter set, like you said, they're balanced and it gives people who play two very different ways to experience blood red skies and kind of decide which direction they want to go with their future uh, purchases and expansions of the game yeah and i mean jumping in there there was also the thinking at the time that the 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 usage of the of the of the, of the great of, of the great climb and the great dive as like was something that was was harder to master it was something that you had to think about more how you would use it um whereas tight turn is fairly straightforward very simple so again we were thinking in terms of people coming into the game who you know w on their first play probably didn't want to get involved in a two trait type thing too many thoughts or, or, or decisions so you know you'd give that beginner player potentially the spitfire because in that sense less to think about because the tight turn is you know is just something that you, you that you that you um you know you decide yourself how you're going to use that so there was there was that element in there as well to provide one of the aircraft that was probably easier to play from a mechanics perspective than the um than, than the Messerschmitt. And I feel like Roger was just hitting me kind of with a whole bunch of really nice political backhands there, huh? So I guess I'm just the simpleton that needed to play that Spitfire. Nah, it's 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 you know, it's I mean. There was, there, was a, there was a time in the original iterations of Blood Red Skies where the card mechanics didn't exist, where the traits were always on. Um, so in some respects, um, you know, the, 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 the thing with the fact that you only have one trait versus a two trait aircraft um, weren't quite so important because you weren't sort of worried about, you know, you, you hadn't got your, your, your card set watered down like two of this and two of the other, whereas I can have four say, for instance, tight turn cards or, or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, you have to remember this is a very early stage in the development of the game. Um, and so much more has been built on top of that since then. And, and any assessment you make of the aircraft, I think, is, is, is perfectly valid, whether you're looking at it from the point of view of when this starter set first came out, or when you look at it now, when you've got X numbers of other aircraft out there, X numbers of other doctrines and, and traits, etc. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's it, it, and it's interesting to see how people have uh, you know really invested themselves in the game, into the traits, into the doctrines, etc., and how much creative thinking and thought there is out there. And certainly, some of the you know suggestions that you know you hear from people saying, "Oh, well, you must have designed it for that particular reason," and that's fantastic, you know. And you're thinking, "Oh God, I wish we had actually thought thought, thought of it in that sort of you know." in that depth, but we, we hadn't. So sometimes we, we you know, well, Andy, I should say, <laughs> you know, some of this stuff looks uh, more thought out than it actually was intended to be in the first place. 
So from the Mark One, Mark Two Spitfire, we jump down to the Spitfire Five B, or no, actually a couple different Mark Five Spitfires. Now the Five B is actually my favorite version, and the difference there is you get a little trade-off. You keep that seven speed, you lose a maneuverability, so you have a two maneuverability, but you gain one in the firepower. You keep the tight turn, so single trait tight turn. So you get a seven two two aircraft. And I'm curious, Roger, what happened in the development of the Spitfire in real life mm. that changed? To, there's three different uh, mm. Mark V variants. One has the tropical filters. One is the uh, LF that we'll talk about in a second. But what changed in the real life Spitfire from the five B to the five Trop that? Mm change those stats well well actually there's a missing link in here because um the next model of spitfire that would have replaced the um the ones and twos was going to be the spitfire three uh and the spitfire three was a an altogether you know um more refined version of the spitfire two it had much better structural integrity um better better elements of streamlining um some of the avionics were that were that little bit better um, it was also going to use the uh, the Merlin 20 engine um, and, and, and would have been, you know, coming into service probably in, you know, 1941, probably early 1942. Um, and at that particular point in time, everybody thought, well, Battle of Britain, we've done quite well. Spitfire 1 and Spitfire 2 performed well against the best that the Germans could throw. And then what happened was the BF-109F uh, BF um, um appeared on the scene and you know it was in the, it appeared at the very end of the battle of britain and uh, at altitude the f was you know superior much superior to the spitfire uh, to the to spitfire 2 and the spitfire 3 of course was still probably a year away so but there was um there was there was a thought and the, and the spitfire and the, and the merlin 20 engine that was going to be in the spitfire 3 um still required some development and was earmarked for other aircraft as well. Um, so what they thought was, well, let's take a down, a, a sort of a slightly less sophisticated version of the Merlin uh, 20 and let's just fit it into a Spitfire 2 or a Spitfire 1 and, and, and see what performance we get. And, and that is basically what the Spitfire 5 was. It was just really, although, you know, there was many, many original build Spitfire 5s after the event, but the first Spitfire 5s were basically Spitfire 1s, ones with better engines put into them, purely to, to counter the threat of the of, of BF-109F. And Spitfire, the, 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 the designation, say, you see A, B and C, that, 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 that really refers to the, to the armament that the aircraft carried. So the, the, the A variant was, was fitted with eight 303s, just the same way that the Spitfire 1s and 2s were. Um, the B, and if, I, if I get this wrong, some, 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 someone will correct me. The B variant um, and the C variant uh, gave, gave, added the Hispano cannons to the mix because it was determined that, you know, for, after seeing the general sort of ineffectiveness of of the of the three hundred threes against the German bombers, which could take that amount of hitting, that we needed to bring cannons in there. So the concept was: is it going to be two cannons uh, with a mixed 
with, with, with an MG armament, or was it going to be four cannons? So you've got the different variants. The A, B, and C referred basically to the, um, more or less, to the, um, to the armament type. And then in the C variant, you got, I think the, at that point, you got the introduction of what they class as the universal wing, which was cleverly created so that you could, you could basically set it up with multiple um, weapon, uh, uh, armament loadouts, whether it be your eight machine guns, or it would be four cannons, four 20 millimeter cannons, or it would be two 20 millimeter cannons and four 303s. And that was generally the, uh, and, and, and that dictated a type of wing. Uh, and that was why they, they, those aircraft were particularly, um, uh, you know, you've got the 5A, 5B and 5C. It was in reference to the sort of the, 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 wing, uh, the wing configuration. Um, so it was a stopgap, the Spitfire 5. It, wasn't in, it was never intended to be that, that next level of development of the Spitfire 1 and 2. It was, oh my God, the, 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 you know, the 109F is going to cause us real problems. We need a better performing aircraft. And so... That's where the Spitfire Five. That's where the Spitfire Five came from. Not sort of like a, a nice measured development through, you know, Mark Three, Mark Four, Mark Five, Mark Six, whatever. Let's go to the. Let, let's create the Five, and, that, and that, that's what that was. The the tropical element was uh, was basically obviously we were uh, Britain was involved in, um, in 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 combat abroad, whether it be in the Far East or more of the case in the Western Desert. Um, and dust was one of the dust and sand and grit was one of the worst things that could uh, to affect the life of engines. Um, you know, on, on on starting up and take off, the amount of rubbish that got dragged into the engines would ruin the engines. So they needed a sand filter, and that's where you then get to see this filter, what they call the tropicalized Spitfire. It really wasn't tropicalized for the heat or anything like that. It was tropicalized because of the uh, wanted to stop dust and dirt and sand and stuff uh, causing problems with the engines. And that was the Vokes filter, I think they called it originally, which was a, a bit of a... Uh, it, it was the one thing that probably uh, that, that spoiled, one thing that spoiled the lines of the Spitfire more than anything else. But it was, it was necessary. And majority of, sort of a lot of the late Spitfires, fives, had this Vokes filter. Um, some people didn't mind it, said it had no effect on performance. Some, pe some, some pilots said it was terrible. The Australians sort of like refused to fly with it because they said it, it caused so much, so much problems in slowing the Spitfire down and reducing its, uh, reducing its, uh, its, its maneuverability. Um, there was a, then a later version, the Abaca filter, which was a much smaller filter, which became a standardized fit for all Spitfires. Um, so yeah, I've gone on a bit there. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's fascinating. Uh, that universal wing you were talking about, yeah. I always thought that was just such a great uh, feat of engineering, right? Where you kind of just make mm. this empty shell and you can put in whatever you want. And that's, I guess you see some of those uh, little round covers over some of the ports and stuff like mm. that. Is that, that what those are when you see them sitting in a museum sometimes? Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just basically, uh, in a lot of cases... Although four four twenty millimeter cannon could be carried, and I think some of the some of the Spitfire fires that flew over Malta uh, were in that configuration, it was generally felt that the weight of those four twenty millimeters was also something that, that actually reduced performance. So the one the one the, the, the one cannon in each wing and two machine guns in each wing uh, became the sort of the um, became the sweet spot uh, for the Spitfire five. 
Um, and yeah, you see that sort of, what you see the long barrel of the gun and then you see that sort of stub, stub next to it. And that stub was just basically an aerodynamic cover to put over the cannon port, the, 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 the third and the fourth cannon ports. So these are all low 30s points planes, 31 and 32. And the Spit, we, we still move to the Spitfire 5 LF. That's also a 32 point aircraft, but the traits change on this one. So this goes from that single tight turn to a great dive, multi-trait of great dive and rapid roll. So it keeps the 722 as the five, but what happens there with the LF that we get that great dive and rapid roll? Was there an engine change, some type of aerodynamic change? Mm. Uh, what happened in there? Well, here we go again. This is a, it, it's again more in a reaction to um, the arrival of, a, of, a, of an opponent. And in this particular case, the Fokker Wolf 190, which was extremely fast, very nippy at lowish altitudes. And, um, you know, had, 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 had a very good roll rate. So not only could it sort of snap onto your tail quite quickly, it was also extremely good at evading if it could get out of trouble by simply just rolling, changing direction and, and, and going in front. So this was a reaction to the, to the Fokker Wolf. And, and the, the Fokker Wolf basically just tore its way through um, the Spitfires um, to the extent where the, you know, the, the um, sort of the, penetration raids that the RAF were doing, which was basically flying, you know, um, uh, interdiction missions over France, were basically almost brought to a halt simply because the, the attrition rate was so high from, from what the Fokker Wolf 190 was doing. Um, at altitude, the Spitfire could still sort of hold its own, but lower down, it, it couldn't. So what happened was, um, Basically, um, they, what they wanted to do was increase its speed and capability at lower altitudes. So this was where they clipped the wings of the, of the standard, took, took, a, took, took X number of inches off each wing tip, and then just uh, gave that straight edge. And what that did was that also increased the roll rate, which meant that it could better evade a 109 if, that was on its tail or get onto a 109. And also there was a, an appreciable, not, not great, but a, a slight increase in speed at, at low altitude. So it was, it was really, as much as anything, a, again, a reaction to an, opponent, an, opposing, an opposing aircraft. Now, from Blood Red Skies, I, uh, the LF, to me, it, it, opens, it opens a huge can of worms, and this all comes down, basically, to, to, to sort of rapid roll. Um, Rapid roll as a game trait is really just, I would, I would, I would add, I'd class it as a sort of like a, a slightly substandard version of, of tight turn. And it's a maneuver thing. So it allows your aircraft to, to basically, you know, turn tighter than those aircraft that don't have that particular trait. And if you have to look at the Fokker Wolf 190, the Fokker Wolf 190 has rapid roll. It was, it was, it was, it was always, you know, in, from a historical and technical perspective, everybody says, yeah, fantastic roll rate, uh, the FW190 could outroll anything else that it was generally going up against. And then you got this thing where rapid roll then got translated, was actually a maneuver thing. And, and if you really look at it, the 190 was a great aircraft, but it wasn't a particularly good maneuverable or turning circle aircraft. But we sort of saddled it with that by giving it rapid roll because everybody said oh yeah a 190 can rapid roll and there was this sort of it became a little bit fuzzy 
So I think there's still some debates on the rapid roll on the Fokker Wolf 190, but, but, but that's where it is at the moment. That's where we have it. So if you then are looking at an aeroplane that was designed to uh, emulate the, the 190, that you took the wingtips off to give it that rapid roll, it sort of became, um, it, it, it sort of became um, logical that you would also give it the rapid roll at the same time. Myself, I would have said it probably should have still kept a tight turn because cutting the, cutting the, cut, cutting the wingtips down like that did not really affect the manoeuvrability. It could still turn as tight as, 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 as other variants of the five. Um, and the great dive, again, was, it was saying because, because there is, you know, per se, no altitude, you know, at performance differences in the traits of it, you know, aircraft, you could say, well, you know, because some aircraft were absolutely phenomenal at low altitude, were absolutely dogs at higher altitude because of lack of superchargers or things like that. And, and vice versa, you know, you could be king at 25,000 feet, but you were rubbish at 10. You know, we don't, we don't really have that in, in, in blood red skies. So great dive. So that ability of, of, of being able to, you know, use, use the, use, use, use the dive increase of speeds, etc. cetera, uh, um, uh, go faster in the dive, um, was just sort of a way of saying, well, how do we represent the fact that, you know, the, the aim of the, of the clipping of the wings here was to make it go faster at low altitude. So that was the, that was the thinking behind it. I would say of all the Spitfire variants and stuff that we've got in here, um, the LF version is the one that probably we will continue to go back to. We will continue to think about and say, is there a better way of representing this? And that means looking at rapid roll as well, which then probably means looking at FW190s as well. But I think that's a can of worms we don't really want to open up until maybe we're talking about version two of the game. Excellent. So from the five, we get to the first real a distinctly different Spitfire. And I feel like this is where the Spitfire camp kind of goes two ways. We have the Spitfire 9. It's an 822 aircraft. So you get the 8 speed. You get a bump up in speed. You keep the 2 maneuverability and the 2 firepower. It's more expensive. So it comes in at that 37 point mark. And the traits goes to from here on out it's pretty much a two trait aircraft right so you keep the tight turn but you get that great climb so i'm assuming that the mark nine spitfire there was some uh drastic difference in the evolution of the airplane at that point it was well again it was again it was an interim it was a um it was an emergency change as much as anything. Whereas you see things like Spitfire 5 LF was a, an attempt to quickly fix the Spitfire 5 as it, it stood to, to better handle things like the Fokker Wolf. Um, again, the same thing was happening. In the background, there were the Spitfire 6, the Spitfire 7, the Spitfire 8, which were all very good fighters, but again, were you know, a couple of months away or a year away from being, from, from being, from being fully developed. So you need to then put into play an aeroplane that is uh, that you know that, that, that can better handle the 190 and and the spitfire 9 really when it comes down to it is really just a spitfire 5 with a better engine and that's what that was all about and the 9 was intended to be a a, a stopgap but 
because it was a good aeroplane and it proved to be a good aeroplane and it was and, and there was lots of developments on it i mean i think i think some very late spitfire 9s were the first ones where they actually cut down the fuselage to give the bubble canopies um, they introduced a number of different um, uh, 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 and experimented with a number of changes that then appeared in later spitfires in the in the in the mark 9 but it, 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 it gained performance, and one of the performance gains it, it, it had was its ability to, to, to operate at higher altitudes as well. It, 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 it was that point in time where the Spitfire there, and then later on the Griffin engine Spitfires, like the 14, you know, became real masters in the climb. Um, so that's what we're representing here in the Spitfire 9. Basically, it's, sort of an increase, it's, it's really a Spitfire 5 that's got a better engine, so it can go faster, and it also now has that ability for, for, for great climb as well to give you that additional thing. And it was probably as manoeuvrable as the Spitfire 5, but maybe not quite as. So again, you get a little bonus here because by switching this now to a two-trait aircraft, you diluted it down. So, you know, you, you, you might have two, two tight turns and two great climbs where previously you had, say, like four. Four, 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 four tight turns. So your maneuverability is slightly reduced. So that was the, that was the thinking behind behind that was to say, well, you know, we, we, basically we've got a in the Mark IX we've got a much more powerful version of the Mark V. Again, it was a, it, it, it was seen as an interim. It's just something we say, right? Heck, we've got a great airframe. We've now got a better developed version of the Merlin. Let's stick that on and see what happens. And it worked out nice. It worked out well. So that was, that's the rationale between the, uh, uh, with the 9. So then the 14 gets pretty pricey at 41 points. You get hmm. a 9 speed and a 2, fire, two maneuverability, 2 firepower. Keep the 2 traits, hmm. the tight turn and the great climb. And is this then the full-on kind of the bubble canopy Spitfire? I know I vaguely remember seeing some images of a Spitfire that looked mm. like it had like two propellers mm. on it. Is that oh, the 14 or are we not there yet? Um, well, the, the, the Spitfire 14, the, the basic version of the Spitfire 14 looks very similar to the Mark 9. Um, there's differences, there's slight differences in shapes in some of the control in the in the, in the tail fins and, and the like. But the, the the main the main difference was that whereas I said that you know that um, that like the five was a stopgap, the nine was a stopgap, and then behind that there was all these other sort of more advanced versions of Spitfire that that, that oh heck you know they're not going to come into come into into service in time, so we'll do a stopgap. Behind this, so you go through the Spitfires, uh, you know, the, the, the Spitfire 4, the Spitfire 6, 7s, 8s. Um, you then eventually came up to something called the Spitfire 12, which was finally bringing into service something that actually, uh, you know, follow, you know, was intrinsically getting better and better. And at that time as well, of course, there was a new, there was a new enhanced version of the Merlin, which was the Rolls-Royce Griffin you know, with sort of two-stage superchargers, etc., was, was, you know, just, just that much better version. And it was the Mark 12 and then onto that the Mark 14 were the first of the Spitfires that actually took advantage of the Griffin engine. And if we could say that the Mark 9 improved in its climbing performance, well, the Spitfire 14, by the time we got to the 14, it was, it was exemplary. That, 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 that aircraft could almost climb vertically. There was very, very few aircraft beyond the jets that could actually stay with a Spitfire in a, in a climb. You'll get those um, you know, anecdotal stories, I think, of like a Spitfire 14 and a P-47. 
uh, sort of barreling along in level flight, and because of the the weight and the you know the kinetic the energy of, of of that of that P forty seven, they both pull back on their sticks, and yeah, for that short space of time, the you know the sheer inertia of the P forty seven will you know it, it will get ahead of the Spitfire, but once um, but once you know give 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 it a few you know give it a few seconds, and then the Spitfire would just leave the P forty seven behind because the P forty seven couldn't maintain that rate of climb, but the Spitfire could. And you know you would not, you would not really want to be a a German fighter engaging with uh, a Spitfire at altitude. It, it really became a beast in, in in the vertical. Now, again, you know, great climb in blood red skies is probably um, it, it. You know, it, it's 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 probably it represents that ability of being able to turn energy into into positional advantage you know i.e you can use your energy to stop somebody else you know gaining advantage of getting above you so um you know that's why again you know we, we carried on the, the the great climb um aspect with this by um um you know to 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 to, to reflect the, the you know the, the the phenomenal vertical performance that the spitfire spitfire could put in there so you know even though they were quite different aircraft from the mark 9 um you know it was most visible in it, it was an increase in level speed that was that was the real thing it was it was that it was that increase in level speed and we thought well show what what should we do because a lot of them a lot of them also had the a lot of those as the spitfires went on as well um, you saw by the end of the war, they were, were more or less focused on four 20mm cannons. Um, and the Spitfire, um, and the Spitfire 14 was probably, the later versions of that was the one that most exemplified the, 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 the introduction of those, of, of those four cannons. So we were thinking of putting a heavy hitter on it. But then we looked at it and said, well, yeah, not all of them had the four cannons, etc. So still many operated with the two. Um, so we thought, well, what should we do? Well, we'll just we'll, we'll just make it an enhanced version of the Mark Nine, and that's what well, it we is did. something. It is something important to remember with Blood Red Skies is a lot of the things, the traits or the advantage states or the boom shits. It's not a direct correlation to something that happens in real life, right? So a lot of it's an ab abstraction of it. So your neutral disadvantage advantage, it's not representing altitude. It's not representing speed. It's kind of representing an entire uh, 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 grouping of things that happen, right? Same with great climb. Great climb isn't necessarily representing that it is has a better climb rate than something. It's representing something that gives that plane a reason to uh, be in a better advantage state than other planes it's fighting against. Same with the boom chits. It's an abstraction of a whole bunch of different things, right? So that's kind of something that uh, kind of leads to the really nice simplicity of the game that is Blood Red Skies, but then those traits kind of bring some of that complexity back as well. So Brett's been sitting there quiet for a long time, and now that we've kind of went through the different uh, marks of the Spitfire... Let's talk a little bit about the strategy of how these things play. So I think Brett's probably played more games specifically against Spitfires than anybody I could think of. So, so Brett, what do you find when you're playing against the Spitfires or some things that you like to watch out for? Well, you know, can I, can I derail this just a little bit? Because we just had such a thorough dive into the different marks that 
there's cards for in game and, and something kind of came to me as I'm looking at this list of the different aircraft. I, I kind of just wanted to touch on that before we maybe get into some real in game experience. Can we do that first? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Okay. So I'm, I'm looking at this, this family of aircraft, if you will, right? Six marks that have cards in, in game. And I kind of compare that to a family of, you know, the, the competitive, the, the, the German, if you will, the German, uh, comparators right this the family of six frontline fighters if you throw in the 190s there's you basically got six v6 right to choose from like and, and maybe in your maybe if you're playing a long a long uh, campaign series of games you know you may stumble into playing the various uh variants as you progress through the time right so that's something that struck me it's like okay it, not only in the starter set do you have a pretty uh matched and balanced uh pair to to play against if you look at the these these as like a family of aircraft that you might then pitch against with the uh, the german comparator i guess it's also a family of six but one advantage i see with the spitfire is that as you progress in your plane you, you could you could bounce around in these different uh marks of aircraft and um in the spitfire family anyway and explore different play styles and not necessarily pay a significant points penalty by making that jump. Whereas if you compare that to the experience you'll have playing uh, Germans, if you include the 190s, you see you got 109s and a couple of 190s that make up six, uh, you could not, I don't, I don't see that you have as much varied play style because of the trait. The traits don't change a whole lot. And when you do get maybe some significant trait or, uh, you know, trait and stat changes in the aircraft. I feel like it with the German family of aircraft, you pay a steeper penalty in points, right? So j- just, it's a very like high, like big picture look at the six aircraft versus the six aircraft. And uh, so that was kind of interesting to me as I saw that I was like, Oh, you know, that's, that gives you in my, from my view in that respect, sort of some flexibility and kind of finding your favorite aircraft or even if you're just playing like a long campaign game you could bounce around with a different advanced you know adventure aircraft and it's not necessarily a as big a penalty potentially for moving up in those aircraft so you know my perspective of course being from the long campaign game stuff we do right now i did though see one specific aircraft that i really liked immediately i saw it said dang that's like the I think it's like, you know, we talked about this when we did the 109 spotlight, right? Everybody talks about historically, the 109F is the like probably high watermark for the 109 in design and performance. But I think in game, I think it could be argued that the 109G is sort of more the sweet spot for in game performance. I see the Mark 9 Spitfire being really sort of the sweet spot for in-game. What do you think? Do you have a favorite? I think you said you like the five, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm all about the five. I, the 5B to me is... Uh, and actually, I might try that five trap, save that point. You really uh, like single trait, too, so I we do. have a little different play style. I do. I like the single trait, and I like the points. At 31, 32 points, you really uh, cannot go wrong with an aircraft that's giving you two firepower at 31, 32 points. Well, man, you know, for, for the same points as the, as the 109 G that I love so much. And I, I, you know, I feel like, well, I just really enjoy playing it, whether I'm good at it or not. It's another discussion, but, uh, for the exact same points with the spit nine, 
I get a little faster aircraft, which that's never bad, but uh, also I get to preserve my great climb, but gain tight turn. And that's a really attractive combination for maybe somebody like me who likes to play two two traits anyway, or at least accustomed to playing two traits. I, man, I, I circle that on my list. Like, man, that nine is nice. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think we we here have probably you know we we spend, we spend probably more time thinking about the Spitfires than 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 than, than, than other aircraft. I guess that's just the nature of the fact of you know of your own nationality, what you've grown up with, your experience, and things things like that. But I I I myself you know of those, I think I would I would agree that you know the, the Spitfire. Spitfire Five is, is is nice because of the sort of the variation that you can you can see there, but the nine the nine is the nine is just about right to me. It's a it's a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good it's a, it's a good aircraft. I think it's worth the additional, you know, five points worth over the five. Man, this is a really good conversation. Hopefully, my um, my little anecdote about the family of aircraft and sort of my little insight there. <laughs> was cogent or whatever but well, as i'm looking i'm like i'm surprised that the nine never really um caught my attention like it does because it certainly has mm. the the points that i'm used to and the traits that i would like in combination so there it is maybe mm. it's because i've you know in my perspective of playing german stuff and already having the models that's kept mm. me from like getting something new to bring to a tournament but maybe from a tournament standpoint i should consider bringing a nine to uh to another game it's certainly it's, it's it's certainly a classic it's a classic aircraft. I mean, it's um, I think uh, it's you know it's certainly the mounted Johnny Johnson who's sort of you know the highest scoring British ace. Um, uh, it's and and many of the preserved aircraft that you see flying now are of that later ilk of the you know the Spitfire nines or Spitfire fourteens or whatever. So it's uh, it, it is a pretty aircraft. It's it's a lovely aircraft. Brett. I'd really like to know what you do to sort of mitigate that tight turn that is a very different play style uh, than anything any of the German aircraft have. Oh, well, uh, I think one of the things that I have... The first thing that comes to mind is just having an aircraft that has at least two firepower, right? Because there's been so many times where, you know, just one's not getting it done. And then you combine that with your uh, ability to do defensive tactics a lot of times. That's probably the single most frustrating thing I encounter would be doing all the hard work to get the perfect tailing shot or, you know, whatever it is, a great shot. And then you're able to do defensive tactics and turn the odds of me, you know, getting a boom chit to practically nil right that that's often frustrating and it's probably the hardest thing i encounter in in playing spitfires i, I think that's that's a that's the first thing that mm -hmm. comes to my mind that's the toughest that's the biggest uh like kick in the pants is when i get it get the job done and then i have to fly away without making anything happen because you were able to turn it into a deflection shot for me yeah especially when you start talking about combining those doctrines and traits and all that stuff mm -hmm. in there you know you really start to uh really start to change the way some of those aircraft play against each other but man i feel too i, I have to I, I think in my play style against spitfire specifically and this is probably i mean i i would guess that this is probably helpful in just about any scenario i think i have to set up my play style so that i have a whole lot of aircraft that can at one time take advantage of one aircraft getting dis you know put into a state of disadvantage so there's a lot of opportunities to try to rack up that boom chit within the idea that I'll fly away 
and come back towards the battle sphere to try again, right? So it's, you know, maybe that's that whole boom and zoom kind of thing, but I'm really trying to do that. And to make that happen, I mentioned, you know, having things that affect my firepower, either just starting with an aircraft that's firepower too, or having other things that maybe give me some extra firepower, but then having a lot of aircraft that can take advantage of that one dude that's down, but then immediately being able to get the heck out of Dodge, get far away. So we're, and so we can come, come back around and, and, and at a place of our choosing. So that also requires a little bit more speed than E gives you. So, you know, with an E and great dive, I'm thinking of not a great advantage, but, um, once you start getting up to the F, it really feels like an upgrade for me in my gameplay because that extra inch combined with great dive. Now I can kind of affect that where, you know, I, I take my shots and then I got to get away so I can come back, come back around and, and fight my fight. That's big picture, but that those are the things that come to mind when I'm thinking about fighting spitfires and it probably affects how I play most every game now, really. So Roger, how do you feel about uh, spitfire in game? Some of your tactics when you're using the spitfire. Um, well, yeah, I, 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 tend, I tend to try and play using the Spitfire a lot um, because I guess I do recognise the... Well, one, I guess, is a bit lazy because the simplicity of I'm only thinking in terms of, of tight turns. Um, yeah, when I get to a nine, of course, I then have that, which can upset a few people, you know, that, 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 that great climb ability, which then, you know, can start pinning down people... For, things that they uh yeah uh, i'm trying to try, try and say you know there's that, that additional element that uh, you know you, you you can stop those people climbing to advantage around you um i think uh you know i'm probably just as guilty as anybody of an overuse of the of, you know some of the some of the some of the doctrine stuff as well so the um uh, uh the aggressive uh, aggressive tactics defensive tactics etc which are extremely powerful um, but I, I, I tend to find when I play against them, uh, it's, 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 as you say, you, you have to try and swamp them more than anything. Um, you have to, cause, cause again, they, they, they've got that, that ability to point in so many different directions. They're very, it's very, it's very hard and very unpredictable as to exactly, um, when you're going up against one of these, one of these Spitfires, especially when it's just got the single type, uh, single type turn tray. Um, it's just a question of just thinking ahead and saying, well, there's, there's, a, there's a number of axes I've got to cover here. And uh, as, as Brett says, you know, also boost up that firepower. Because when you get that chance to hit Spitfire, you really need to hit it. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I, I would say. You, you need to swarm them a little bit. Uh, against them, you need to swarm them a little bit. You need to enhance your firepower, I think. Um, playing them... Um, well, it, it's, they're just so easy to play. That's what, that's that that's that that's all I all, all, all I can really say. You just have a lot of options with those those tight turns. You can get yourself, you know, um, you can get yourself into so many excellent firing positions um, using the defensive tactics. You can get yourself out of jail so many times. Um, I'm probably not being as co co cohesive here about uh, uh, as I could be, but. I love playing the Spitfires. They are they are my favorite. There's no doubts about it, and I try and avoid playing against them if at all yeah. possible. In game, there's no way you can separate the Spitfire from Tight Turn. I mean, it's no. I, I think in game, Spitfire and Tight Turn are pretty synonymous. It's it's really they go hand in hand. Mm. And just that ability, just that ability to to you know to get well. I think 
yeah, to exploit that turn to get so many, you know, relatively speaking, so many shots in. So, you know, even if it's just down to those boom chits or whatever. Yeah, the low firepower of the early Spitfires is, is a bit of a hindrance, but once you get to two, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's a lot easier. So we've been going yeah, we've... for, man, about an hour and 20 minutes here, hour and 25 minutes. Uh, man, any, any closing shots, Roger, just to kind of... Uh wrap it up here about the spitfire any last little nuggets of information or uh um, any what we could expect to come in the game for the spitfire or anything like that well i i think i think we will probably to, two two things that we need to look at i think is probably the spitfire 5 lf we need to sort of uh, look at this whole um rapid roll um aspect to it and you know it's a question of watch this space we may change it but we can't change it without changing the fuck off 90 really um we've had some interesting debates on the tropical version because theoretically you should uh represent uh, a tropical five with perhaps using the uh, you know the, the 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 tropical filters card but you know that's the the, the drop in speed there was that is reflected by a card is a great deal more than the uh than the actual loss of speed which is only about you know, less than 10 miles per hour in reality for the Spitfire. Um, so I, I, I'm thinking that we may, you know, the, 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 the tropical was put in there probably because we've got some very nice models for some reason out there of the, uh, of, of the tropical Spitfire. So we put, we, we, we put those stats in there. Um, I'd like to see us look at some of the other ones, the, you know, the Spitfire, which people don't really uh, tend to focus on which is the sort of Spitfire sevens and eights and stuff, which which spent, which fought, which were used, you know, mostly overseas. Um, uh, so um, I'd like to see us do some stuff on on those. They're not going to be that radically different, but hopefully we could put something in there to make them just that little bit, just make that little bit difference and show that there is a there is another family. It's it's, it's the same thing with anything related to the the Far East um, from a British perspective. You know, the Forgotten Army and all that sort of stuff. You know, people talk about Spitfire nines and fives and that, but you know, the whole the, the, that whole other grouping of Spitfires, the Mark Eights, etc. You know, just don't get mentioned at all. And I'd like to see us put something in there for that. So, how about you, Brad? Any last words here before we wrap it up? Yeah, I know we kind of ran out of time to get in great detail about any of this, but in game, are there many aces uh, ace cards for the Spitfire? Yeah, I'll turn that over to Roger. I'm not a I'm not an ace heavy guy like some of these players are out there. I'm not super familiar with the with the aces on the Spitfire. Yeah, I mean we just have um, let's see, we have I mean originally Johnny Johnson was was originally gonna be in the Battle of Britain one, but we we, we chopped him out early because we realised that you know although he he ended up as sort of a high scoring British ace, um, and he did get kills during the Battle of Britain. We didn't um, we we thought we needed somebody else. So that's it. Hence why we put Sailor Milan in there. Um, I'm, I'm desperately trying to remember what the traits are of those two particular, of, of those two particular guys. Um, we certainly need probably some more, um, some, some more aces in there because, you know, Spitfire did produce uh, a, a fair number of them. Uh, I'm just trying to think what well, Salem Milan, um, set them up killer instinct. Um, that's a nice one for, uh, for, 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 for uh, for groups, I like the set, I like the set them up um, a skill. Um, Johnny Johnson, Blackout Master, Mother Hen. Again, yeah, the British ones we, t- we tend tend to be one of those that sort of show pilots that are really sort of like team players rather than rather than individuals. Um, 
which I think was sort of a thing of, 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 of the way this sort of the RAF worked. Um, but there's, there's certainly room to bring in more, uh, bring, in, bring in more. And we probably need somebody, you know, like a Spitfire 14 Ace or something like that to just give us that little bit of difference. I think we even, I think LPP made an LPP card, a, mm. a, you know, unofficial card for, um, gosh, you forgive me, I can't remember the name and I don't have any of that stuff in front of me, but it was a, a, a recce pilot who mm. uh, flew a Spitfire, among other things, that I think we might have done a card for. I, I can't recall, but, you know, folks mm. who are really interested enough, if you're out there still listening, <laughs> you know, maybe check out the site and see, see our card list. There might be one in there that uh, is a Spitfire guy. But, you know, th- th- it's, it's anything with a Spitfire RAF in general is way outside of my wheelhouse. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Let me learn from you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was excellent, Roger. I just, uh, like I said, I, I know like basically the americanized version of the plane right which is like the ex- mm. the elliptical wing and kind of the mm. maneuverable aircraft and this like plane with beautiful lines type deal mm. but just learning more about the substance of it uh i know it's laid over there for you really mm. appreciate you having you on and uh man i hope the listeners enjoyed it also thanks a lot yeah thank you thank you for having me on much appreciated yeah thanks a lot roger Excellent. And if you guys listening enjoy these aircraft spotlight episodes, definitely drop us a line. Let us know if there's an aircraft that uh, you'd like to hear about, or maybe you're kind of a uh, self-taught expert on one as well that you could come on, teach us a little bit about the strategy, how that compares with the real life aircraft. And uh, we look forward to seeing you guys next time. Thanks a lot.